Assam, you know, with all its wonderful syncretic culture, beautiful uh, music and dance and folklore and everything, I mean, it has seen some really bad times. So uh, this was while we were growing up from middle school to high school, you know, those, so those kind of things have happened around. So we've kind of seen the so-called lockdowns firsthand back then. So this lockdown which came now, for us it was like there, we, we missed school for one year or more, like the whole schools and colleges were shut down. And all the people used to go out, used to return home very early in the evening because the CRPF would do flag march in the streets and you know there would be stories of they beat up some boy here and there. Just because they were interrogating someone, some boy got beat up, then I mean women suffer the double triple yoke of being a woman so either there's sexual aggression family pressure and then you know all kind of thing Nabina Das says I write because I feel that living on words and the experiences they generate is an extra nourishment one can have other than just eating sleeping and living on I am feral that way. I scavenge and brood into the darkness of the heart and the world, looking for words. Nabina is a Sahapedia UNESCO Fellow, a Charles Wallace Creative Writing alumna, and a Commonwealth Writers' Organization featured correspondent. Born and brought up in Guwahati, Nabina's poetry collections include Into the Migrant City, Blue Vessel and Sanskarnama, which was mentioned as one of the best poetry books of 2018 by Open Magazine. Her first novel is Footprints in the Bajra and her short fiction volume is titled The House of Twining Roses. Nabina writes and translates in English, Assamese and Bengali while her poetry has been translated into the Croatian, French, Bengali, Malayalam and Urdu. She has just released a magnum opus, a collection of the works of 250 of the finest poets of India in a book called Witness, the Red River Book of Descent. Nabina is an iconoclast and one of the finest poets of our times. I'm Sunil Bhandari. And you are listening to Red River Sessions, presented to you by Uncut Poetry. In Red River Sessions, we talk to published poets about their poetry, their craft, and what haunts them. It is brought to you by Red River, which is the premier independent publisher of poetry books and Uncut Poetry, a much-loved poetry podcast. Hi, Nabina. Hi, Sunil. How are you? Good to have you here. Yeah, it's wonderful. I mean, I'm actually very excited, a little flustered. So, <laughs> is that a good thing? Yeah, I guess so. Even I'm flustered, tell you the truth. But good yeah. to see you in front of me. This is the first interview I'm doing oh with someone God. in front of me, which is such a relief. Yeah, I mean, we are actually sitting face to face. and That's wonderful. I, mean, I think I find it more connecting in that sense, you know, rather yeah. than sitting in a cold room, trying to talk to a digital voice, disembodied. 
voice. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. But those are the constraints of the ages we live in, isn't yeah, it? True, yeah, true, true. I mean, that makes us also reach out to far more people than we could have, oh, possibly. It's just good. my good luck, I think, my, my uh, good fortune that I'm here. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Super duper. So, I want to start with one intriguing thing which uh, I saw the other day on Facebook. Mm-hmm. I saw a photograph of yours. Young girl, six years or seven years old, looking hard outside the photograph, almost rebellious, right? So okay. my question was, <laughs> you know what the question is, were you always rebellious <laughs> and ready to face the world even when you were that young? <laughs> well, I was almost expecting you last me this. Uh, I'm not six or seven, actually, I'm, I think I'm older. I'm either in the sixth or seventh grade. In that photograph. Okay. So I'm slightly older. And uh, yeah, I mean, this was a strange photograph even for me because um, I was just scrounging through my mother's photo albums and uh, so going through some very old photographs and this just popped out and I'm like, this is me and look how. And even, you know, I thought like, was I always like this? I asked myself the same question. And um, okay, sixth and seventh grade, you know, by the time children are a little more, you know, aware of their surroundings, etc. So I'm not not really a tiny kid, right? But um, and the photograph, if you have noticed, as you said, I mean, apart from the gaze, the way I am looking sternly ahead, a lot of people thought I'm a stern schoolgirl. <laughs> I wasn't a stern schoolgirl. I was a very shy and withdrawn and introvert kind of a schoolgirl, which I am still. But there I have apparently, you know, in the photograph, it's it's meant for some kind of an exam, merit test or something that the school used to conduct. And my hair is all, you know, scattered around my head, although there are two little tiny plates. <laughs> <laughs> so and then then, of course, the look beyond the glasses that I'm wearing. Yeah. So I think, you know, number one, I mean, I hate being photographed in such a formal manner and it probably always had been like this for me secondly it was a merit test and I was like oh god there is another some kind of a fancy exam I have to sit for and the school wants me to submit a photograph so you know my mood was probably a little you know <laughs> of uh, quote unquote resistance <laughs> if I may use the word I did Fair not enough. really know the word back then at that time um, but I think the sense of the thing was that you know I really don't appreciate being uh, straight jacketed and made to sit like that and look straight at the camera and uh, yeah I'm looking a little grumpy but determined yeah, <laughs> so that's for sure. rebel or not actually I don't know but yeah I mean when I talk to others in my family they always say that I had my own mind and I would like be a little stubborn and stubbornness has been a part of me since probably when I was a very small kid and because my grandmother who I saw who lived pretty old and then died she was a very stubborn lady too and she and I had this thing you know everyone in the family would compare that you know her her grandma is very stubborn little old woman very stubborn still and her granddaughter is equally like her you know they have some kind of a 
um, similarity there. I must have inherited it from the women in my family, especially my grandmother. And there is one uh, Pishima, which is my father's oldest sister. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's actually the, I think, eldest or second in, uh, I can't quite remember. But she's the only uh, daughter among their four sons. Okay. And so, uh, although she must have been pampered because she was the only girl, and uh, she also had a very, very uh, strong mind of her own. She led a life which is very eventful, political and socially conscious. And, you know, so I, I'm kind of, I feel I must have been inspired a little bit by my avant-garde Pishima, my aunt, and my very um, orthodox, strict uh, angry old grandmother who was nevertheless very open-minded in certain ways as in you know among all the cousins who were boys again I was the only girl so she would make it a point that I get the best plate I get the best you know bite of the food and you know she would actually run after the cousins who were all boys you know with her ladle in hand like <laughs> she would she would run after oh them like shoo, shoo them away let the girl do her thing like let the girl do her thing so you can imagine so maybe that photograph conveys that sort of you know stubbornness and resistance and whatever it really <laughs> does it really does so, yeah. so taking off from what you said do you remember the first time you felt indignation at what you at that point of time thought were the iniquities of the world do you remember any occasion during those days when you were you you felt that yeah actually i mean uh, i did in uh, you know in varying degrees um, because my family was always also very you know my father and my uncles were very political all the time most of the time till till the time they started having kids you know ma- made their own family and all but even then so a lot of stories came down to me about their activities in the undivided bengal and because 1971 is when Bangladesh was formed. They were very active in their own different ways in the politics of uh, APAR and OPAR Bangla, this Bengal and that Bengal, you know. So they have had very active roles to play. And uh, my awareness at that age was like, you know, I hear these stories from my uh, uncles and then my father. And I also see the kind of books that are in the house, which were mostly literature and newspaper, little magazines, and, you know, also some political uh, pamphlets and booklets around. So sort of I started looking at them on my own. Nobody was coaching me or, you know, goading me that just because your dad is this or your uh, J2 or, you know, oldest uncle is like that, you got to be uh, you know such and such nobody was proselytizing me in Mm. in this sort of awareness but I kind of started reading and at 13 I read War and Peace which was like a a gift from an uncle my uncle Uh, and I I turned 13 and he thought she just stepped into the teens the right book for her is and it was a big fat you know War and Peace and I had to skip some chapters to get to the story, actually. Because it's also philosophy, right? Yes, very It's not true. just a, a novel, not just fiction. It's a lot of uh, philosophy. And Tolstoy, as you know, like his fiction carried his, his la- later life's, uh, you know, philosophy and worldview and outlook. So those things were there. And then there were stories of partition, which I grew up with, because my grandmother is from the partition generation. And so there were stories. And this is my paternal side I'm talking about. Similar things happened also on my maternal side they were not 
a political outright but they had partition stories so they had stories of crossing over or seeing people cross over living behind homes and hearts and you know my mother would tell me story about when she was you know they were all from what is known as bangladesh today so in a way we are bangal that way mm. but we are also assamese because we always were in that contiguous state region province called assam and uh, so speaking assamese and bengali at the same time was sort of you know like a normal thing for me and uh, then i saw this um, the plight of you know poor people who come to work which is still the truth in so many houses that we visit here there everywhere and there would be a lot of people who were uh, what probably today would be termed as undocumented like they right. didn't have any passport or any identity card to show but you know they they lived a life which was this side and that side and they were very fluid at the same time their miseries their uh, needs and wants everything used to transpire on us i believe you know in a way my family because they were so implicated in the partition history so um, i kind of got aware of those things uh, right from the beginning but many many stories that i heard like even stories which are not always like right or wrong but stories of human experience for example uh, while my um, uh, paternal side my father and uncles were all mostly all leftists in my maternal side there was no such influence of left politics okay but but they were you know more influenced by vaishnavism and the huma- humanism you know that vaishnava culture would bring you know equality and humanity and that that's like the uh, the whole essence of vaishnavite you know culture that you know pervaded their senses but my boromashi like my oldest mashi was very affected by partition and she would constantly tell us stories which could be termed as biased could be termed as you know even full of anger if not vitriol because she had seen some untold uh, violence and injustice but we would sit and listen to her and even talk to her when i became older older than what you saw me in that photograph sure. i would even sit and talk to her say but boroma she listen i mean this is your side of the story similar story might exist on the other side also and maybe you know you need to find that out and i think blaming only increases more uh, hatred and intolerance so probably you know she would say yes but who's going to do that and she was getting older and so my oldest mashi was like um you know i've seen life and this is what has happened but you know i i love to at least listen to her and incorporate that into some of my writing which i have done for my short fiction also my um, you know poetry and the partition stories were also not just stories of riots or hindu muslim rivalry or violence but it was like people wanting to survive and even help each other and um, trying to majority of the people would actually look out for each other that was the thing i mean it's true that bangladesh was formed of course on the basis of what is uh, its uh, main you know the language bangla bhasha and all that but while being in assam and later on you know we, we all grew up in assam you know my cousins me and my brother so i i'm not a kolkata person per se although you know i speak bangla so uh, but i i always thought even uh, my bilingualism helped me a lot to be aware of the situation here and there 
and there would be like a you know very poor guy come and i'll ask my father so what's he come here for so my dad would say oh the lawns overgrown with grass he'll cut the grass and take it to feed his cows and then i would learn that his name is maybe dilwar hussein or something like that and sometimes he speaks assamese sometimes he speaks bangla depending on where he is and there is no document showing where he actually belongs to but he probably belongs to everywhere he belongs this side and that side and these are like really poor people who have to and they they um you know they have a have their own understanding their own community of helping you know and whether they are hindus or muslims right. so that awareness uh, got into uh, my head pretty soon i would say so here's this young girl who's hearing stories of survival and probably bloodshed and mm-hmm. neighbors helping each other neighbors killing each other yeah. i mean there's this whole documentation which is happening with this girl who's the young nabina mm-hmm. and she's absorbing all of this mm-hmm. how do you think that has had a lasting impression on you both as a person and as a poet um well i think i mean as a person when you are uh in the middle of all these stories and histories i mean more than stories they are also actually part of histories because these are oral histories and oral histories also then get transformed into written histories but not everything is written in our in our history books even even probably the best of the partition historians would still have to go find more work you know more accounts of people so for me as a person i thought they at least made me look at things try to look at it holistically that you know when i'm uh, trying to look at current day uh, issues which still exist between you know the, the all this jingoism what india pakistan or now india bangladesh probably is little bit on the mend i don't know <laughs> but um, even within the country i don't forget border issues even even you know we have created borders within ourselves within ourselves we tend to uh, call label each other and you know give each other social and political identities so i feel these stories and histories have at least made me capable of somehow trying to understand that what is the exact thing that goes on behind because often it's the uh, powerful that you know try to put the powerless at play you know it's like the greek gods would be pulling strings and yeah. human beings are yeah. you know puppets. squabbling yes. but yeah like puppets they yeah. are squabbling and fighting killing each other so the whole greek tales that we used to read in school i had a school textbook called greek tales oh we're full of you know people like out doing each other killing each other turning each, uh, each other into some animals or birds and and the gods are pulling the strings so i mean it's somehow the metaphor is you know like this is what happens even in our society when you know ordinary people need to just survive live and live in peace i mean of course there are differences like my my grandmother for example i mean she's like i said she was very orthodox uh hindu widow and uh, she would have her own kitchen and no non-veg food would be like but you know she cooked very good non-veg food which i don't think how many wow. families have this story wow yeah <laughs> she i remember would come uh, like the day it was fixed that she would cook something for us she'd come into the kitchen she'll make some fish kebabs and this and that and keema chop and thing is and after all that she'd go out take a bath do some tulsi My and ganga jal and never eat any of it no, at all no she has never tasted it herself but she would make 
wonderful stuff just so wonderful that we'd be like you know licking our fingers and like our grandmother made this and then when people come to know say but your grandmother is a, a like a vidwa no vidhova and a hindu widow who's pretty orthodox uh, not conservative i won't call her conservative in that way but orthodox means she has certain way of life she loves to stick to that uh, kind of like but she's the one who would make you know kebabs and chops and you know keema things and you know we'd just be eating and i still remember and she was very good at it while she had never never even you know tasted like what is the salt or how's the masala there nothing nothing you know she would just do it and get away and we will enjoy it so these these are kind of and my grandmother had her own little kitchen which she would very um punctually maintain you know and then clean up and uh, so in inside that place no non veg gets in it's pure vegetarian but she loved to cook so she used to cook like many many things and <laughs> pass it on to the other people in the family <laughs> and then my mother would say like ma who's going to eat so much like we make one <laughs> one fish curry and one dal maybe and she's cooked like three vegetables yeah. you know one pata one with uh, curry and one with uh, crispy fry or something right she loved to cook i mean she was a very active person till the last you know moment of her life but and uh, she entertained guests in her house who came over uh, from bangladesh sometimes i've seen some of our visitors who came from many many places one of the persons who came from dhaka or somewhere uh, she was given a separate plate and all but my grandmother served her and gave her water and gave her food and wow. all of that was like mm. like that is why I say she's not she's orthodox but not conservative you know yeah. orthodox as per her own Wonderful. lifestyle and norms matter so these are the things i've grown up with and it makes me at least uh, want to think that i'm going to be at least like that and understand what the other person is or the other community or culture or you know country is and as a poet i think you know that sort of kind of gets a little bit mixed up with all kind of things that I, I mean I have a couple of poems I can read for you and maybe um sure that would be <laughs> lovely why don't we that would be fantastic okay so um I'll read one poem this is from my book Into the Migrant City oh, this was uh, published from Writers Workshop which is in Kolkata correct and now Pilal everybody yeah, knows yeah, and Anandulal yeah. Professor Anandulal mm. is now the uh, person who runs it and uh, I'm really grateful to them because they did a lot of you know they showed me a lot of support in uh, this book when it came out mm-hmm. I think it came out in 2013 or 14 right. something like that mm. So this particular poem is um about the the partition story memory which I am mentioning. Okay. And it's sort of dedicated to the memory of my father who's not here anymore. And she passed away in 2010 and uh <clears throat> so for to both my parents. The title is No Country No Names. The young girl in a sari was off to the library her hands clasping books She didn't see the truck crawl up behind her stuffed with soldiers wearing leafy helmets false implants in the heart of that shell-shocked macadamized bengal town her face a sorry storybook quite a few pages torn when they found her by a garbage dump stared at the, by the ancient panhandler the poor bastard refused arrest shouted abuses got suitably thrashed by the police The young man had whispered the night before show me your palm the red henna peacock 
from the evening's merry festivities and she read him a poem about crocodiles and snare until they fell asleep in each other's arms dreaming there was a river grass and flowers shrouding its banks its depths unknown but easy for the rebels who could swim the same night yahya khan made quick plans to strike universities where students danced to the songs of tagore that was a night when nervous sirens screamed on and on his would be bride was picked up and thrown folding up maps that fooled didn't show a country of hearts he left a peacock mourned for her and him no country yet for them oh my god is, is there a story behind this uh, poem well it was um, again you know a melange of stories which were handed down um from my parents and others and they were like my uh, aunt who i mentioned my pishima who i mentioned uh, she had a you know she was also a political activist and i was just talking about this with my mother last night that um she while being a very active um uh, person on ground she got uh, uh, she was, i i don't know if it, she got married or not but she definitely had somebody in her life at that point and uh, that particular person was encountered by police so and then my mother said your aunt was like in a really bad state i mean of course somebody you love and admire and want to be uh with that person lifelong as a partner and if that person has been encountered so things really actually you know i mean i, I don't know I, i cannot put myself in her place but i think it will be like end of everything for even a person as strong as my aunt because you know we all knew her as a she was called a peasant leader in bangladesh you know krishok netri anima singh anima singho but i mean even for a person of that stature to have had this sort of an experience in life where somebody you love is torn away from you i thought that sort of you know stayed in my psyche for quite a long time and when i was writing this poem of course the roles have been reversed and his uh, the woman who is gone and the man has to leave and and there are you know i talk about maps and borders and i talk about how things just change overnight and yahya khan is of course that that particular historically reviled character who uh, wanted to completely break uh, is bengal which it was known as is bengal at that time so yeah it was uh, you know partly to do with uh, this kind of stories do you think hurts in a family also get passed down I don't know but uh, that's such an interesting question as in uh, the story you're relating your question to I I think I mean of course as kids when we have heard and when I again I recounted it last night I did feel very sad I I felt like completely incapable of you know uh, expressing myself like I wouldn't know what it feels to lose a partner like this to a violent you know regime where police would come after this man or somebody equally horrible so uh, yeah the hurt 
i mean but i would feel that even if there is hurt in life uh, my outlook is you know because poetry has i feel it is i don't want to call it therapeutic or anything but i think poetry has the power of redemption has the power of you know uh, that phoenix like quality which you know it can burn you then it can again raise you from the ashes i mean it itself has these things so it it is very difficult to explain so when i hear stories even oh, whether of my pishima or my uh, oldest masi i i always think that somewhere you know their hurt makes me also uh, a better hopefully a better person like they say like uh, you know i'm not calling myself gold by the way but gold when burnt more becomes purer there is some kind of a proverb <laughs> like that I, I this know is exactly not what you mean say, <laughs> i'm not doing any yeah. self applause here yeah. fair enough fair enough <laughs> yeah. yeah you had another poem Yeah I think I I'm going to read a poem from the same book Into the Migrant City um initially the book was actually titled something like Migrant City or whatever so my professor in the US where I completed my MFA degree in creative writing uh her name is Elaine Teranova Elaine Teranova was a very old woman probably she's even older now and she's a good poet so she suggested let's put this into to keep keep it like in a sense of motion you know like some kind of a kinesis that it is not you know point to point but it is something that keeps moving you know like a, like the same geometry that a straight line has no ending it keeps moving so she suggested let's name it into the migrant city where we are still you know uh, one way or the other we are in the state of uh you know being a migrant somehow when well, there are real migrants and where you know their journey never ends i mean there has to be something in it so i took her advice anyway so this poem is from my background which is assam uh, because i grew up i'm a guwahati girl very much a guwahati girl and uh, that's how i like to be called i don't like to be called an assamese poet or bengali poet or a uh, <laughs> delhi poet or somebody even call me a new jersey poet oh my god <laughs> because i went to study my mfa in radgus camden new jersey but i think uh, the place names really don't mean much to me and uh, but yeah i mean it is true i have been every in all of these places i have got something to bring back So uh, the poem title is called Kam Aita. Aita means grandmother in Assamese. And this is from a res- uh, my recent political understanding of what happened in Assam during the long long student agitation of the 70s and then the ASU and then the Alpha, you know the the extremism that Assam has faced and you know its different regions. So again it's a story about common people's life, right? So Kam Aita It's been long we must discuss if we want radishes in this year's garden green gourds climbing a common fence sure you can have some also coriander to sprinkle on the pitika for a late afternoon meal bhut jolokia that no one will eat the army fancies it now we know the newspapers have it all the tea shops get their fortune told Kamaita let's talk about the pigs and the calves born this year the ducks that won't stop chasing the hens even if you yell about the corner shop bipin corner shop bipin i'm not sure whose ma died crying for he was gone in the forest they say to become an insurgent but the mother said to find the old dog gela of the mangy coat to those stories aita my answers are slippery feet and oil 
Come Aita, let's walk down the paddy lanes just till the town bus stand. You wait for Aunt Moromi. I can tell you why Aslam won't sell fish cheap even if you swear on the hungry mouth floods, forsaken huts and fungal pots and pans we won't ever throw away. And if you wonder why the one-eyed Hare Krishna didn't return from the big market of Ganeshguri, no ID, no whereabouts, Aita, I swear on my loveless luck, I'd have to invent a new fairy tale. My God, but there are so many things happening in this poem. Yeah, there are, it's all stories again and some of it is real. Like, did not return from the Ganeshguri mm. market. There was a big bomb blast in Ganeshguri market and we were all there. My father had just gone like an hour ago or something, returned with vegetables or stuff. And then this blast goes on and everywhere and radio and TV and everything. And those days Twitter wasn't there, of course, you know, when we were small. But the bomb blast was so huge and there were actual, uh, a friend of mine who worked as a journalist, he said, I went there and they were like, I don't know how to say it, like limbs hanging from all over oh the things. I mean, it, it was brutal. But again, this is whose life is affected. It's only the common, common people, people yeah. poor people, you know, daily wages and vegetable vendors and small shopkeepers. Exactly the way COVID has been doing to us for these last two years, right? It's like we are mostly getting by because we have the wherewithal. Some of us still fingers crossed, have jobs or some ways of earning money and we still get to eat what we please. But for some people, it's a daily struggle. So it was something like that. So the bomb went off. So the Ganesh Guri market reference is actually very, very real. And uh, Aita is any, uh, it's almost an, any grandmother you would see who would worry about you know, families being torn apart, um, some boy gone, gone away, become insurgent. The boy's mother would say, no, no, he just went to look for something and he never came back. And there are so many boys and girls at that time in Assam, they actually were drawn to this sort of radical ideology of becoming an insurgent because they just had no other option, you know. Because the other option is to uh, do the daily thing and get killed either by a bomb blast or just starve or, you know, be frustrated even if you say, had a degree or anything, they weren't enough jobs. So there are a lot of things. I mean, the Northeast is also a very, uh, you know, it's, it's an exciting place. At the same time, it has a lot of, you know, cultures and communities which are constantly, you know, things mixing with each other, producing something. There is convergence, there is divergence, all kind of things. And Assam, you know, with all its wonderful syncretic culture, beautiful uh, music and dance and folklore and everything, I mean, it has seen some really bad times. So uh, this was while we were growing up and from middle school to high school, you know, those, so those kind of things have happened around. So we've kind of seen the so-called lockdowns firsthand back then. So this lockdown which came now, for us it was like there. We we missed school for one year or more. Like the whole schools and colleges were shut down. And all the people used to go out, used to return home, 
very early in the evening because the CRPF would do flag march in the streets and, you know, there would be stories of they beat up some boy here and there just because they were interrogating someone, some boy got beat up. Then, I mean, women suffer the double, triple yoke of being a woman. So either there's sexual aggression, family pressure, and then, you know, all kind of thing. So there are so many stories being around us. So I'm actually coming from that place. And so for poetry for me is always like, you know, it really, I feel it just has to say these stories, say this in whatever way possible. I mean, I'm not thinking of myself as a poet with an agenda or anything. Like, you know, political pamphlet writing. <laughs> but you know, how can I like chuck away these things and erase and say... So actually, the poems which I'm reading, I also look at them as poems of peace in a way that, you know, if, if somebody's partner has been torn from away from him or her or if there has been a blast at a place or some boy gone away to the forest to become a militant i i still see that the quest for bringing them back to that place where it's a place of peace and rest and uh, uh humanity you know like to get them back on that so the idea is not that this kind of thing should should keep happening you know that but it's unfortunate it has happened with so many people around me, I mean, really so many. And uh, But I feel enriched by them in the sense, you know, that I can tell these stories and I can think that, okay, let's then make sure that those things don't happen more, right? It almost seems to me that your growing up years and your life and your experiences have all literally culminated into creation of this book which came out yesterday. It seems that what you've done is you've gathered voices which have promoted, provoked, engendered dissent and made this book witness. I think it's a great way to ask you this question. How did the idea of the book came? I think your life is the idea, I I, I presume, (laughs) but I would like to hear it from you. First of all, thank you. Thank you very much for all the good words. And I think, yes, I will, um, you know, accept all the good words that are coming in because we need them. And, you know, in a world which is so rife with, you know, suspicion and violence and enmity and differences. So take the good words and start feeling oh, good absolutely. about it, right? <laughs> so, I mean, maybe you are right. I think you are right in a way that whatever I have uh, experienced uh, from the time I was a child, first through the stories and all, and then through my own experience of the Assam agitation and alpha extremism, etc. But, you know, like I've seen brilliant boys and girls on all sides. And even from alpha, they were poets. They were, they were poets, you know, there were people who would write poems and sing songs and they could have gone on to become something else if the circumstances allowed right so so those are very complex issues and instead of saying but this one became a militant and that one ran away or whatever or we need to look at these problems in a different way about the book witness uh, i i actually i mean i don't want to take all the credit at all um, first let me give credit to dibya jyoti sharma of uh, red river because uh, dibya is this one person I, I think he, he you should get him to talk about this and there might I be some know. dark secrets he'll spill out like how this book's happened this book happened right um, so I, I have you to spill those dark secrets 
<laughs> my job is done <laughs> so he and i actually were meeting at um, after some i was in delhi and we met there was a some kind of a poetry gathering and then we said let's go and sit somewhere maybe have a drink or something just chat for a while and we've been thinking of doing a couple of books and i had been passing ideas back and forth then i said maybe a book on dissent or resistance i don't want to call it resistance maybe dissent dissent is a more uh, you know it it can be spread over to many many um, areas of human action whereas resistance probably means very uh, particularly a kind of political action but that is included also so dibya and i talked and he said okay let's get it done and so how will we do it and i said well i i'll start reaching out to poets whoever i can i know and maybe you also do that and then match a list and see and uh, what is dissent how should we explain it to people so my thing was simple that you know my first line of my dissent is love and here i don't want to sound like a you know again you know it's not like <laughs> but i mean love as in first thing is when you protest you when you express your uh, disagreement it should be done with the intention of you know bringing everybody up on that plane where uh, things are not disruptive right so that is how i said so love is dissent and uh, loss is dissent somebody's talking about loss grief someone wants to grieve in quiet in in their own place that is dissent even silence is dissent right like that somebody I mean, they say you have the right to be silent and that is dissent and resistance which is active resistance where so many people actually politically they are active uh, on ground um, underground or overground whichever way um, of course that is dissent very much so so uh, that's how this whole uh, discussion started and then uh, we just reached out to as many people as we could and we realized there were so many people who we still couldn't get in you know for me i mean physically it was getting almost unbearable i i would have probably either passed out or fallen <laughs> sick or you know ran away somewhere i don't know so i'm like i have to finish it i i think i'm done because and uh, there was hand wringing sometimes dibu and i we talked very little though this was a very strange kind of partnership where we actually did not call each other frequently we mailed only if there was something detailed to be mailed and i hate messaging back too much to and fro so it was like the nominal kind of messaging and so but still it got done you know with the minimum amount of communication we kind of were on the same page and uh, we just did it and uh, then when we sent uh, asked people to contribute and i realized that i still cannot get so many people to do it um but uh, you know when people started sending work it was overwhelming number one because they were happy and i was happy dibya was happy we were a little scared also <laughs> and why was why scared scared because you know whether we had the capability as editor and publisher to understand the work to you know take it forward you know it's a huge thing i suddenly realized it's not i mean i wish somebody had done a ghost written thing for me <laughs> you know for such a large book like next next time maybe i'll say somebody please ghost write it now i'm joking i'm of course kidding but um yeah i mean so how long did this entire enterprise take um the the initial discussion started i think in january of 2020 maybe we had talked about it little 
before also. But January, I was in Delhi, I remember. And Dibya came over and we talked. And then we started. And suddenly, uh, as we began sort of having people send us work, just started. So March, the lockdown happened. And when the lockdown happened, everything went in a tizzy, you know. I mean, there are people, even if, you know, most people I know were not directly affected, but they were affected in many ways. There were families who were stuck here and there. There were people um, leaving their jobs or, you know, curtailing themselves, you know. Work um, pattern was changing. And then because so many uh, ordinary common citizens were on the move, actually, from cities and towns of India, the great exodus, the great march that happened, and everything suddenly changed for us, you know. And we were not also in that headspace to keep uh, working. And I, I know, like, we were worried about my... Like, I was teaching uh, as a part-time faculty in Hyderabad Central University. So there was no hope that that course will be revived again. So my teaching got, you know, kaput over there, right? So I was like, okay, I have to do something, but this also... And so there were like parallel thoughts in the head, how to get, you know, take the whole project forward. And then I've mentioned in the introduction that my daughter had a fracture and that put me like in a different, uh, you know, realm altogether. So running after and seeing the kid at home with a bandaged leg and trying to figure out some work, trying to read poetry at the same time. And uh, everybody's stuck at home. I would do my own cooking because all the people had suddenly left and gone. And uh, and then there is disconcerting news coming, how jobs were disappearing, um, houses were getting empty and um, people were shifting from place, not, not as a voluntary gesture, but, you know, they were compelled to change so many things about and life. And the labor, the migrant labor, the problem. Yes, the migrant laborers, the daily wages, the small shop owners. There's so many changes that happened and it was like chaos all around. So that affected us a lot but by that time we had already decided to do it. So there was no going back really. So somehow from March lockdown onwards till about August, September, we slowly built up the corpus of this book. And people were cooperating with us. That's the best thing. Because, you know, if I have to thank anyone after Red River, it's the poets. Because all of these poets, they were very, very patient. Very patient. And some of the poets I came to know a little later in life. Like, for example, you yourself. Like, I, I hadn't, you know, like, had you right in the beginning. But, you know, when I met you finally, and I had started listening to your podcast. So, it was like, you know, well, you know, it's such a gain, actually, that you get another person with you to walk the whole stretch. And so, quite a few people also joined later in the year. And, uh, and then there were many, many people who still wanted to come in. But number was increasing. And then finally, one day, Dibya and I spoke on the phone and Dibya said, maybe we need to stop because <laughs> this will never get over. And I said, yeah. Uh, I said, physically, I'm overwhelmed. You know, I'm spending nights, late nights, pouring over the thing, going through the poems, looking at uh, proofs. And, you know, I mean, I make it a point to read 
what whatever submissions i have had and uh, not not just because somebody is a very well known person who poet so let it just you know pass but it's not a question of passing or not passing but i like to s- read and see if this is making sense to us and i'm so glad that all of these poets have stuck by us and every time i tried uh, you know i felt that anxiety that oh my god this is not getting over so what shall we do you guys are still with us right and you know people would write back saying nabina don't worry just do it you know some 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 others were a little more anxious like when is the book getting done and when is the book getting done which is very natural and i said no it is getting done don't worry you know we are just taking our time because everything you know ek there is a bihari song samajbad babua dheere dheere aayi so this is probably not samajbad exactly or i don't know in how many ways it can facilitate that but i kind of remembered that song hathi pe na aayi na ghode pe aayi you know is dheere dheere it comes slowly give it its time you know let it have its own pace so and by the end of 2020 i would say we kind of had a proper manuscript and uh, then the whole task was to just go through the entire manuscript check everything look at the credits and you know some of the poems are new unpublished but since we had said poems can be published as well so we had to go check back with the magazine where it was published with the book where it was published if it needed um permission especially there were there are a few translations not many this book doesn't have too many but there are a few significant translations from tamil from bhili from santali one kokborok via bangla which madhu did raghavendra wow. yeah that is from tripura and kokborok is one language i i have a small incident here because i have family all over northeast and my uh, one of my uncles my father's older brother he they live in agartala they had family in agartala they still are there my uncle is no more here but uh, he knew fluent kokborok mm-hmm. and at that time he had presented me a small thin book like a uh, like in bangladesh a choti book like small thin book and it was kokborok in bangla alphabets and i planned that i would learn kokborok but there was just to read that book yeah i mean this is a primer kokborok language okay. primer but i never really learned it because i had no where to practice it because once you learn a language you need to practice it a bit and there was no kokborok speaker around me but i still remember having that book which my uncle gave and i knew that he was fluent because he would go work in the villages and meet people speak to them in their language so when i saw that there is a poem coming from you know uh, chandrakanta mura singh who writes in kokborok and bangla and madhu had translated i said i'll take that you know you know it that was my kind connection with kokborok then there is in bhili and in santali and um of course tamil gujarati there very be- um, talented dalit poets from gujarat hemang desai has translated so i want to mention those then uh, uh, jacinta kerketa uh, she's uh, um uh, she doesn't write in kurok although her mother tongue is kurok one of the tribal languages and uh, i uh, got drawn to jacinta uh, just by you know reading that description because for my masters thesis uh, i worked on kurok <laughs> i was a linguistic God. student it was bringing <laughs> you back to some old yeah, days yeah so i was like trying to like also see that how my life connected with these things and i while doing that master's thesis i actually 
had pretty decent kuruk you know where i could actually do a decent basic conversation uh with a kuruk speaker but now i have forgotten now i don't remember anyway jacinta writes in uh, hindi uh she uh, although she is a kuruk speaker she writes in hindi but i think she brings in the sensibility of her you know her own uh, people you know in these poems that she writes and truly you know she defines resistance in her way so uh if you see the um book the pdf version you'll find jacinta kerkita's poem and um so these are some of the poems i'm very proud of gathering and then there are a lot of friends and then there are people who are not friends but i know they are poets who i can include because they're so good and a lot of people did not of course respond that is also there sure. when i have written to them they maybe sent one line saying okay we will see but they never saw to it or some people just didn't bother to reply and we were running out of time so we couldn't really go back at every person saying hello can you please check again and send us you know time was up and we were getting a little bit tired and uh, so did you get something out of the pandemic which was very particular to that phase of time because whilst you were gathering poems that is the phase also which came into uh, realization so did you get some poems which were actually arising out, out of, of the, the pandemic, pandemic? I, and and the politics of it and the problem I which came out of it i think we have a few poems you have yeah, a few yeah. we have a few but i cannot off the cuff just mention anyone's yeah, name fair enough but i i think i'm i do have poems which have come out of the pandemic you know about the uh, things that happened in universities things that happened with migrant laborers and you know people's lives of metaphors like masks you know like the mask is such a metaphor oh absolutely multiple facets you can yeah. derive out so of that have, one word we have had of sickness because you know i mean covid-19 is a completely bizarre new sickness that has invaded our lives but at the same time think of it like if it is pandemic so many other pandemics have already existed and like pandemics like hunger poverty starvation and you know and uh, all kind of uh, things i mean these are also uh, not medical pandemics but socially speaking they are you know of that nature and the shift and the loss and deaths which have chaos which has which have happened uh, in covid-19 period uh, which can be called genocidal because even during starvations and famines and floods and you know all those big big events that you know we have recorded uh, so many things were genocidal in nature so i kind of see it that way so it, these are not just one off incident is so many uh, hundreds and thousands of people without food or medicine or proper uh, care and fending for themselves so it it, it definitely has a lot of repercussions so we've had quite a few poems like that we've had poems which are very um, they are feminist poems and very beautiful lyrical poems and poems of nature and like i said grief loss silence love because uh, again you know we have had artists with things like love jihad and all that so you know somewhere all of this just come under the whole banner so i i know it's unfair for you to choose a poem or two but i would like you to read a few poems so can you pick out a few and uh, maybe a couple or maybe three and uh, read witness? some out yes, yes. Uh, so from witness there is this poem by jacinta kerketa who i just spoke about 
This poem is from her upcoming collection uh, in Hindi. It's called Ishwar or Bazaar, God and the Bazaar. And this poem has been translated by, I mean, the whole book has been translated by uh, Bhumika Chawla D'Souza. So the title of the poem is It's Time for Prayer. For centuries, we have been told that lack of faith in the Almighty is the cause of hunger, disease and poverty. And when we asked why in this crowd so vast, a good part of a good yield remains always trapped in the hands of a privileged few, they said they are the chosen ones on earth. The share of many mouths lands in the pots of a few and there it remains for days. This is God's grace. But what of the others? Sickness and hunger is the price they must pay for their wavering belief, their lack of faith. When it was time for us to come together and stand against the injustice being committed on us, we came out in thousands, men, women and children, leaving behind our forests and headed for the prayer hall instead. Day after day we sat there giving the speaker a blank stare. Generations went by but the tide never turned. And then we were told, it takes sacrifice to bring about change. So we emptied our pockets and gave away our land, our language, everything. On and on the congregation cried, miracles happen from above. So. We lifted up our closed eyes and lost sight of the roots of the malaise. With folded hands, we prayed for change and learned this way, the art of unquestioned supplication. We were torn apart. We stood on different sides. While some took to the streets, we prayed and looked to the days ahead, for we were told, somewhere out, there is the glorious paradise. One day, at the end of our tether, we all came together to say, enough, no more. We must now stand up as one against our predicament. Right now, this very minute, for the future is here, right here in this moment. When, all of a sudden, from different directions, in many different tones, the bells gonged saying, meeting time is over, it's time for prayer. You know, Navina, I mean, something of this nature how do you discover a poet who you might not know but who is writing so powerfully? How do you discover? Because not having a poem of this kind would have made your book so much lesser. Very true. I, I do agree. I'm quite proud of this poem by Jacinta and you know, I can go on speaking endlessly about it. I actually don't really know how I came across and this is a shortcoming I feel on the part of us Anglophone poets that sometimes you know we are so immersed in our Anglophone world that we we just move in that small little pond and you know that is it and we flap our fins and we think we are the great writers and because we are writing in English etc etc I mean to be very honest my initial early writing was in Bengali and Assamese and I have diary notebooks full of Bengali um, poetry and Assamese poetry. I even published a little bit in small magazines and they used to have literary sections in newspapers. So Jacinta, uh, I came across probably purely because of social media, to be very honest. And uh, because social media at least throws at you various things among, you know, um, uh, makeup and hairstyle and, you know, changing your teeth or, you know, uh, 
dating, chatting, and other services. It does because then it also adds value somewhere. <laughs> it it does. It does. the algorithm has figured out somewhere that uh, among all these things, this women woman just might like poetry. I get old age homes now. <laughs> you must be joking. You must be joking. You must be joking. No, no, not at all. I told Tanu it can't be true. <laughs> so yeah, so so while we are being bombarded by all kind of ads and this service and that service, it it just also brings uh, some poet references and you know through you know other people's likes and shares. And so when I saw Jacinta, I don't remember. I mean, I. Started started reading her work and my hindi is not bad i've studied a little bit of hindi and uh, more or less you know i can understand quite a bit and i just saw that she was such a fabulous poet and so many people in the anglophone writing circles just don't know her don't read her now she's getting this book translated by bhumika but that doesn't mean you know that's how she is available to us she should be available to us anyway and the same goes for people writing in other languages you know whether mm, and that's why i think translation is also very important translation is also a form of resistance and dissent where you need to bring this other voice and that's why we have included some this unfortunately could not be a 50-50 translation and uh, non-translation work but i tried to take in whatever i could get you know wonderful so uh, another poem maybe you have a translation again or maybe another poem which you are fond of So here's another poem uh from Asiya Zahoor from Kashmir and this is from her book Serpents Under My Veil uh published by Tetsis and the book's got good review and all that and I have met Asiya even before I think the book was published and uh have been looking at some of her work and uh so this uh, the title of the poem is Gifts to a Daughter Not Yet Conceived I gift you millennium of confusion in my genes, muffled chromosomes, a double X to excavate epiphanies. I sow doubt in my womb, watered with fears. I gift you my unsettled struggles, uncommitted sins, unnoticed virtues, unread and half-read books, three by two inches laminated paper in the name of identity. I gift you a rugged map carved from cracks between divorced nations. I gift you unyielding obsessions, unexplored passions, a horoscope of cusps, Hamlet's unfinished line from the valley of Kashmir, to be or not to be. My god. This this had my hair standing on its end, you know. Asia is very good and um, I she's she also has a linguistics background I think I mean I don't know that's probably not the reason why I um, read her but we've met earlier in Delhi at uh, some kind of a literary function where nobody was talking about poetry per se but uh, that's where I just thought you know and start reading her Arising out of this poem I want to ask you a question this is like an artery cut across you know So do you write compulsively or do you write when your vein breaks? Um 
I sometimes just write. I write and I write as though there was nothing else to be done. And that's the last thing I could do. I would leave everything and sit and write. But uh, these days, I mean, to be very frank, I think I'm also caught between, you know, work at home and work from home, whatever remains of it. Uh, and, uh, and, and then writing. And, um, but again, during the pandemic, I did not write much contrary to what I hear from others who've been writing a lot. People have gone on saying, we've written thousands of words of fiction or uh, short stories and books and books after books. I have written so little, but I have read a little bit. And I think my, you know, the energy that I invested in this book and reading all of these hundreds of poets, I think that's my award. I feel, you know, I don't really need to regret that I did not write much because for me also it was a uh, time when, you know, everything seemed chaotic around, but here I was finding my, uh, you know, hand-holding with these people through their words, through their verses. So I just thought that's a kind of solidarity which is needed now. I mean, I always have thought, I mean, in this world which is so um, connected today, uh, mostly connected, let's say, for a lot of us who are privileged anyway, uh, through digital media and other other means, and we share ever so easily, you know, we can share on Facebook or Twitter, there are Insta poets and this and that, and there's email, um, earlier we used to write and mail things out. Um, I, I just thought, like, we still hadn't quite had a place i mean this was my version of having a home where i would put everybody in and you know then we can all have a big party so you know i'm basically looking for you know a little bit of fun <laughs> so you know like yes let's do this if i had a big house i would like say hey everybody just come along and you know stay here as long as you want cook share sing dance read and so this is my version of like and descent, descent. that <laughs> Is listen, can you imagine 250 or more poets in one house? That is going to shake the establishment. People will come after us saying, what is going on in this house? Why there are so many people at odd hours sitting, writing, eating, talking, discussing? Can you imagine? For me, that's the ultimate uh, state of ecstasy also. You know, yeah. I'm I'm not a very social person. I go to poetry meets. I have been to a few, but I really don't know what to say when I have to compulsively socialize. But here, this is a different thing. And this is like my fantasy, like, let's get everybody together, you know? And so I'm I'm so glad though this has happened and so I'm going to read another poem if it's okay with you. Please. This sure. will be page number 167, Kazi Neel. Can you give a background to the poem and the poet? Yeah, Kazi Neel is a very young poet from Assam and he belongs to that particular collective of poets, the collective they have been calling themselves Mia Poets. And uh, now this also, this is very recent and uh, I had written uh, an article about Mia Poets when they started out. Why are they called Mia Poets? They are called Mia Poets because most of them, they are uh, mostly Assamese-speaking uh, uh, Muslims who have roots, you know, uh, like again I said, Epar Bangla and Opar Bangla. So there, there are this, you know, like roots which are floating, like lotus roots would float across the river. And I bring in the river imagery also because rivers form borders in many parts of that country, which is not marked with barbed wire or anything. And it's just the river, the swamp 
swamps the water bodies and so the mia poets were um, at one point like a uh, couple of years ago there was almost like a vilification going on against them saying this is another agenda uh, you know muslims and hindus and again it's the same narrative which was again being peddled but to look at them uh, mia poets were just poets young people who needed to also claim the title mia back into their lives because sometimes you know these words have been used derogatively derisively so somebody is a mia you know so that almost is a slur but to take the slur back and to reinstitute it and call themselves mia poets they were reconfirming reaffirming their identity so there is almost a rebellion it there is, which is, is inherent in that name it is a rebellion it is like you know uh, reclaiming one's identity um so i mean how else do i uh, i mean there are so many instances probably other parts of the world where you know poets have uh, black poets when they have black movements you know how they reclaim back or um, the chicano poets you know among the latino poets and you know there are so many other you know so people who are familiar with world literature would know more so i feel that you know kazineel and shalim hussein is another name and uh, i think rehna sultana is i unfortunately don't have rehna sultana here which i feel is a personal loss but maybe next time and uh, so i would like to read kazi and uh, Yeah this is a poem which is by a very young person Kazi Neel is a very young person and I've been reading Neel's poem on Facebook and I really really like his uh you know like go to hell sort of attitude and you know this is the young gun you know young turks if you might say so um i had i'd requested shalim hussein to translate it for me he did two versions so i don't remember which version is this but we we initially had read two versions sure. so the title of this poem is we sons of bitches are doing fine translated from the mia dialect spoken in assam by shalim m hussein We make TikTok memes, dalgona coffee and chicken dry fry. We sons of bitches are doing fine. We write rain poems, sing songs, paint pictures and hold online bihu, curse the useless prime minister at 8 in the evening and fuck at midnight and high noon. We sons of bastards are doing fine. We wait in line at liquor stores, drunkenly establish communism and pimp out to capitalism first thing in the morning. We worthless bastards are doing fine. Millions of bodies come home. There's blood on the highway, blood on train wheels, blood on pieces of bread. We sons of pigs eat watermelon and bleed tears on our screens. We sons of bitches are doing fine. We invite stars to leftist events. They decide if the starving should or should not eat meat. We priceless parasites are doing fine. Nothing will happen to us if the world goes to hell nothing will happen to us we will keep writing poems and workers walking hundreds of miles will be our profile pictures find me a bigger opportunistic leech we sons of bitches are doing fine we read novels in silence read poetry when this plague ends who but we will write heartwarming literature we sons of hypocrites are doing fine 
we see humanity wallowing in mud and nothing happens to us nothing will happen to us we scumbags will keep doing fine we will keep rolling in meat and wine in this chaos we will keep posting bleeding heart ballads we sons of bitches are doing fine on this incredible note I think we can wrap this session up Navina this has been such an incredible conversation It's been my pleasure Absolutely and you can get the Red River Book of Descent Witness on Amazon and it's a hard copy just now i guess you will get a kindle version soon enough hopefully very soon we have international um, edition and we have a domestic uh, it's available both on amazon.in and .com and one can buy from the vendor too so if you get in touch with red river so there is a direct you know vendor can send copies which will be slightly more discounted so i, I will give you all the details in the show notes so you will be able to get this book immediately you must buy this incredible book wonderful Navina, sounds good thank you so much it's been such a pleasure having you thank you thank you to you it was really good really enjoyed and i'm just warming up by the way and i had about 20 questions left so probably we need another conversation and another time part two, absolutely part two. we let's, will do that let's let's do a part two wonderful said, <laughs> this is just a warm-up see you bye bye thank you thank you sunil this was red river sessions presented by uncut poetry you can find books published by red river online at redriver.co.in and in select bookstores and uncut poetry is the immensely popular poetry podcast of original poetry by sunil bhandari you can hear uncut poetry on spotify itunes gana pocket casts or anywhere you get your podcasts if you enjoyed this episode talk about it write about it share it and subscribe to uncut poetry presents red river sessions so you never miss an episode see you soon